All right, good morning, church. Uh, as Kevin said, for those who don't know me, my name is Joel McCarty. I'm one of the pastors here at New Eden Church, uh, specifically the pastor for preaching and oversight. Um, and I, I want to welcome you, especially if you're visiting with us, to this gathering of New Eden Church. Um, our heart is that you feel welcomed and loved and encouraged. Uh, but more importantly than meeting us, we want you to meet King Jesus. Um, and that might be meeting him for the first time or for the millionth time um, and seeing him afresh and anew. But that is our heart. We want you to come face to face with his beauty and majesty. Um, to our members and regular tenders, I don't know about y'all, but I'm, I'm excited to be back just kind of with us as the New Eden family. We've been kind of bouncing around a little bit, which has been fun and encouraging, um, but also just being back together to a little sense of if you call this normalcy, I don't know. It's just us hanging out as a family. I do want to thank you for your patience as we work on getting the building ready to go. Um, and I'm excited about that as Kevin updated you um, on all that. So like I said earlier, if there's distractions like we've already experienced, we're just going to keep rolling and we'll just go with it. So it's all good. Um, so here in New Eden, we typically preach through books of the Bible. Um, we started John at the beginning of this year. We went through it and then we took a little bit of a break um, as we were working through the summer and bouncing around a little bit. And so we're jumping back into John. Um, we stopped at the end of chapter seven and we're going to be, as you heard read, John chapter seven, verses 59 through chapter eight. Sorry, it's actually 53. I said put 59 on multiple things and the bulletin, I think as well, but it's verse 53 through chapter eight, verse 11. So our story is a very familiar one. Um, it's a story about a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and she's brought before Jesus in the midst of her shame and her guilt. Now, maybe some of you can remember a time when you were caught red-handed. Maybe you can think back to when you were a kid and your mom told you not to get any more candy that day and you were sneaking candy out of the cookie jar, right? And you were caught. There was nothing you could do about it. There, you were caught red-handed, right? Uh, maybe for you, it was later in life and you were older and it was something of a bigger deal, right? Maybe there were bigger repercussions and consequences, but you remember that feeling of being caught when you know you were wrong, right? It's not one of those things where there's nuance, like you, you know you were wrong. And it's amazing in those moments how quickly the shame and the guilt and even the fear of repercussions, you can go from even enjoying whatever you are doing or engaged in or feeling justified in it to immediately feeling that sense of shame, guilt, and fear. We understand that. We know we messed up. It doesn't feel good. Um, just yesterday on a personal confession, um, I was coaching my son's football game and it was an intense game. The final score ended up being 13-12. So it's a close game back and forth. And me and another coach, like when you're in the midst of it, you're just like speaking pretty frankly because you're having to make decisions within like 25 seconds. And I think I crossed, no, I know I crossed the line. So I'm even justifying my own sin. But I crossed the line from kind of speaking frankly as coaches might have to do into honestly disrespecting that person as a human. And immediately within about 30 seconds, I felt horrible. Um, I apologized. He wasn't quite ready for it. Gave him space. We worked it out after the game. Um, and I asked for his forgiveness. But even last night, as I was prepping, doing some more work, prep work on this sermon, I was feeling, Ooh, that wasn't good. All right. Let's fix that real quick. Um, even last night, as I was prepping this sermon, I was feeling that sense of shame 
and guilt. See, the tendency when we're caught in these moments is to blame shift, right? Um, even as I tell the story, I want to give you my side of the story and help you understand the nuance so I don't come across as just this selfish jerk, right? Um, another thing we'll do is maybe you've done this or you've heard people do this is separate yourself from your actions, right? If someone gets caught saying like a racist comment or sexist comment, then here's what the apology you'll hear a lot is that's not really who I am as if who we are is completely divorced from our actions and what we do, right? And, and we can just do that with a simple statement. Oh, that's not who I am, right? See, no one likes these moments of being exposed for who we really are. When our brokenness is on display for the entire world and our friends to see. But there is one before whom we've always been exposed. We've always stood guilty. Yet that person somehow has only ever responded in love. And that's what our story is about today. Now, before we dive in completely, just one thing I want to mention, something called textual variance. So if you are following along in your scripture notebook, um, you'll see a little note um, at the top that of, of verse 53 of chapter 7 that says the earliest MSS or manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 through verse 811. Um, the translators of the English translation are very honest um, when they find that the earliest and best manuscripts that we have that we translate from don't have have this text in the original. And there's a couple more like this and the end of Mark and some other places. Okay. So how this happens is just this is a little sidebar, but originally before the printing press and you just kind of had automatic printing, things were passed down handwritten by scribes. That's how it worked. So scribes would copy it all the way from the beginning when these gospels were written by human authors, though under the divine inspiration of the spirit, right? And so that's what one of these is. And so what the assumption is, is that a scribe was adding the story in as commentary in this part of the text. Um, and then it kind of made its way into the actual text of scripture, though we don't believe that it is actual scripture. Okay. And so what I appreciate about the translators is that they're just honest about this and they leave it up for you to decide. This isn't a matter um, in any of the textual variants. There's none of the Christian doctrines um, that the core Christian doctrines that are messed with in any of these textual variants. I hope it actually encourages your faith in the inspired text because God uses humans to work through this. All right. Um, if you have more questions about this, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on it. It would take a lot of time to unpack it. Um, I'm more than happy to grab lunch with you and wrestle through this. Um, we need to remember that our faith ultimately is built on the word, Jesus Christ, not just a physical text, though this is massively important. Don't hear me say it's not, but I want to make that clear. And so what does that mean for our text today? Because that's the exact text. Um, it probably means that it's not what we would call as Christians inspired scripture. The thing is, though, that it is a story that is consistent with the character of God. And most scholars believe that there's enough evidence to prove that this story actually did happen. OK, even though it's not a part of Scripture. So that's kind of my view. Again, this is an open handed issue as far as this text. If you believe it is a part of Scripture, that's OK. If you're King James Version, you probably believe it is right um, that those uh, translators had a different view. And that's OK. All right. So we decided since the story is well known, it's a very well known story. And since the narrative is consistent with the character of Jesus, it would be helpful for us to point out the biblical truths that are found in this story. So let's just getting that out of the way. Let's dive into the story. There's three movements in the story we're going to see. The first one is the adulteress and the religious leaders, the adulteress and the religious leaders. The second movement is Jesus and the religious leaders. 
Jesus and the religious leaders. And the last movement is Jesus and the adulteress. Jesus and the adulteress. So let's look first at the adulteress and the religious leaders. So regardless of when this story took place, we know by now that the religious leaders are upset with Jesus. He's kind of thrown out and upset their religious system that they had in place. And so this adulterous woman that they bring before Jesus has become nothing more than a pawn in their chess match to try to get another point against this Messiah. And so using this woman and her sin, they see an opportunity to get Jesus in trouble. And so they bring this woman who's allegedly caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. In verse four, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So they bring this woman to the temple where Jesus was teaching most likely to a large crowd gathered around and they lead her to Jesus. And the text tells us they push her in the center of everybody. So you can imagine this, no regard for her dignity. They're just using her. Was she even fully clothed as she was caught in the act? We don't know, but maybe you can imagine with me for just a moment, her shame and her fear as she's led to the middle of this giant crowd caught in the act. And from what we know in the text, most likely guilty. Now, if you're reading the story for the first time on the surface, you might think that these religious leaders are trying to uphold holiness and justice, but it doesn't take long in the text to see that's not what's going on. Right away, they're interpreting the law from Deuteronomy to make it fit what they want. If she was really caught in the act, then the law would require that there would also be a man with her. And the question we have to ask is, where is the man in this story? Because if she's really caught in the act, he is not brought here. If they really were concerned with following the law equitably, they would have brought both of the guilty parties, but that's not their concern. They are okay with the perversion of justice to simply get their way. Our narrator plainly tells us in verse six, that their motivation is not holiness or purity. It's to have something against Jesus. By this point, they knew the character of Jesus. They knew there was no way that Jesus would condemn this woman to be stoned. And so they wanted him to come across as if he was contradicting the law, which to the Jewish people would prove him to be an untrustworthy teacher to follow. This is their sole motivation to simply get rid of him. See, for these people, and this is a danger for us, both the scriptures and this woman were simply tools to be manipulated in their attempts to get rid of Jesus so they can just have the life they want. They're grifters, using religion, using other people. They are not true and sincere worshipers of God. And in our culture today, many of us sometimes are not much different as we manipulate both the scriptures and other humans to get what we want, to maintain our sense of power and control. Now, I wanna do one more quick sidebar. There's some difficult things in this text. Let me just acknowledge that. You might have some dissonance in your heart or tension when you hear about Old Testament references to the death penalty. So let me first of all, just acknowledge that that tension exists. It exists in my own heart. Sometimes I wrestle with this and that's okay. I wrestle with the text, we should. 
Um, as a follower of Jesus, that's probably a good thing to have a little bit of tension there. You should always pause when you hear about the taking of someone's life. And so let me say just a couple things to maybe try to help resolve a little bit of the tension, though I might not resolve it all, and that's okay, because I'll go back and forth with this myself. And then we've got to kind of move on into the story, but I don't want it to distract from it. If you want to talk about this later more as well, we can. So the Bible Project, which is a helpful tool, it's an online thing you can find. They've got videos and stuff. Um, it's helpful. They talk about three things that you need to remember when you read through the Old Testament laws that provide the death penalty for certain sins or transgressions. The first thing they say to remember is remember that the laws are the terms of the Sinai covenant specifically given to the nation of ancient Israel. Meaning that first of all, Israel was invited to accept these terms, not forced. Uh, Israel actually accepts these terms. And because of the comparison of those terms to the surrounding nations, they actually say, this is good. We like this. And they accept the terms. It kind of leads us to the second thing. Remember not to compare the ancient laws of Israel with modern laws, but rather with the ancient laws of Israel's neighbors. When you read ancient Near Eastern laws, every single one of them had massive death penalty ramifications. The Code of Hammurabi, however you say it, I don't know, someone else can say that for me. Um, other ancient Near Eastern codes and laws had the death penalty. It was very uh, much enforced. Um, Israel, in the commands given to Israel, are actually called to a higher level of justice, I would argue. Um, things like being able to um, ignore the laws because someone was of a higher social class. You don't see that in the Israel text. You see care for the poor and the sojourner. You see them being called to be treated with the same level of justice as everyone else. There were limits to the violence that happened. An eye for an eye was actually saying, hey, you can't do any more than take an eye for an eye. It wasn't saying, hey, take an eye for an eye. We're just going to add more justice. It was actually putting a limit on the justice and the violence. There also had to be multiple witnesses in Israel's law. So this could not just be senseless accusations thrown out there. And remember, with the Old Covenant, it was never meant to be permanent, and it was never meant to be globally binding. But even with the Old Covenant, even though it wasn't enough to save people, Jesus says that plainly, Paul says that plainly, it was moving his people to a better way to live, not a worse one. In our culture, that's hard to understand, and I recognize that. But the whole point of the law was that others would see the beauty of Israel living in submission to Yahweh and say, we want that. That's way better than what we have. That was the point of it, even though Israel failed at it. And then lastly, we must remember to discern the core principle underlying the law. So, for example, in this case and many others, the core principle is that sexual sin is serious. We don't get away from that even in the New Testament, even if there's not the death penalty for it. God takes seriously what we do with our bodies and sex, and what we do with our bodies and sex actually reveals how seriously we take God. And we have to be honest with that. Jackie Hill Perry is a good resource if you want to explore that more fully. That's the underlying principle from the law that we see referenced in our text today, okay? I know there's a little sidebar, back to our story, all right? So by this time, in this culture, the religious leaders care nothing about exacting the law equitably. They only care about using it for their own purposes and manipulating and oppressing people. They're using it to trap Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Let's look at the end of verse six and see our story move from the adulteress and the religious leaders to Jesus and the religious leaders. 
chapter eight, verse six, at the second part of it, it says, Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, the distinguished ones, supposedly. Only he was left. Jesus was left with the woman in the center. So they interrupt Jesus and his teaching to parade this woman in front of him. And how does he respond? What does he do? I love it. Our text tells us that he doesn't even really acknowledge the question. He starts doodling in the sand a little bit. He bends down on the woman's level, gets in the dirt with her. This would have angered them further. They persist in forcing him to answer the question. And I love this. In all this, Jesus seems to be pretty relaxed and in control. Not in a hurry. He stands up and he says the famous line that most of us probably could quote. I remember it from the King James, let you without sin cast the first stone. This is a line that we've all heard used when someone was being judged by others, right? As if perfection was required by anyone before they could ever hold you accountable. Um, recently, I heard a pastor use this verse to silence his congregants who took issue with his ongoing affair that he had been caught in. And he quoted this verse in his comeback sermon one week later um, as he justified his reasons for staying in the position of pastor. And unfortunately, I'm pretty sure that's not how Jesus intended this verse to be used, right? Again, we like to manipulate scripture for our own purposes. What's going on here is much more than just a witty comeback to these religious leaders. He is showing us quite a few things with this statement. First of all, he's revealing the true purpose of the law. As they were trying to use the law self-righteously to trap Jesus, Jesus turns it back on them and shows that the true purpose of the law was always to reveal that everyone was guilty before a holy, righteous, just God. He's also revealing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. There are none who aren't guilty of treason against God, let alone an act of adultery. Jesus is exposing their true motives. He's exposing their prejudices against this woman. He's exposing their systemic ongoing abuses of the law and other humans. And he's also, most importantly, revealing himself. See, the whole point of the law and the whole point of this statement is not to cause us to now go try to be the ones without sin so we can start justly casting stones. That's not the point of it. It's to cause every single one of us to turn to the one without sin, Jesus himself, so we can be saved from the stones we rightly deserve. And in this statement, Jesus both affirms and fulfills the heart of the law while also saving and redeeming this woman. It's amazing. The law required at least two witnesses and they're all gone because of what Jesus said and did. There are now no more accusers. 
People have speculated for years what Jesus wrote in the sand, right? He bends down and writes in the sand. I've heard a bunch of different assumptions about this. Some say he maybe wrote the sins of all the men who brought the woman before him. Um, I'm not a big fan of that one because I feel like that's a little petty. And like, I don't, I think it's something I would do, not something Jesus would do. Uh, But you know, maybe, who knows? We don't really know. Some say he was following the custom of the day. When judges would make pronouncements, they would typically write out, you know, guilty or acquitted in the sand before they would proclaim it out loud. That might've been what he was doing. We don't know. Um, I do think regardless of what he actually did, I think there's a bigger story going on here. Um, St. Augustine, who's one of the early, 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 church fathers pointed out the similarities between this story and a prophecy that we find in Jeremiah in the Old Testament. We don't have time to really go there and I don't have it on the screen for you because we don't have screens. But in Jeremiah 17, 1, you're welcome to go read through that chapter later. But in verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 17, the prophet proclaims that the sins of God's covenant people are inscribed with an iron stylus and engraved, I mean, it's very specific, engraved with a diamond point on all the hearts of those who have rejected Yahweh. And the prophecy goes on to say in verse 10, that Yahweh is the one who examines the mind and exposes the heart for its true motives. And in verse 13, it says that all who turn and walk away from the Lord would be written in the dirt as opposed to their name being written in heaven signifying that ultimately all that reject this Jesus would be destroyed instead of made new. And the next verse says that the reason this would happen is because they've rejected the fountain of living water. And I don't know if you remember the last time we were in John, but it was Jesus proclaiming that he and the spirit of God was the living water. I can't say for sure that's what's going on in this story. But it seems as if Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, at least in a micro sense in this encounter with the religious leaders, because he is the one who examines and exposes the heart. Their conscience reveals their own sin. He has just proclaimed himself as the living water at the Feast of Booths. And these men reject him and walk away as he writes in the dirt. This is a perfect point to take a quick break. So just sit here for a minute while this passes. The squeaking's going. All right, we're going to roll. We're going to roll. I'll speak up. If it gets really bad, I think I'll notice it. All right, so that, that's kind of the first two movements. All right, we saw the religious leaders and the adulterers. We saw Jesus and the uh, religious leaders. No, yeah, Jesus and the religious leaders. Am I back up? It's all right, we're going to roll. Jesus and the adulteress is the last one we're going to see. I have no idea what I said the last 30 seconds. But we're moving into Jesus and the adulteress, all right? In John chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it says this. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. So Jesus points out the obvious. Now I can imagine the woman shaking maybe a little bit as she's calming down. I mean, she's just been through a pretty traumatic event, right? She very well could have been stoned. I'm going to give this another second. It's not going far, so I can't concentrate. I don't know if you guys can, but... All right, I think we're good. So back to the story, right? This woman has just gone through this event. It's probably pretty silent at this point. The text tells us that all that's left now is Jesus and this woman. Now, we're not naive to think that there's probably not people in the background still lingering and seeing from a distance what would happen next. I'm sure the woman herself 
is a little nervous and scared. After all, she is sitting before the only one who truly is without sin and has the right to cast the first stone, but what will he say? And in verse 11, if we can get into the context, he says some of the most beautiful words to those who know that they are wretched sinners. He says, neither do I condemn you. The one who could have justly accused and condemned her refuses to do so. See, when this woman was brought before Jesus, the religious leaders, you know what? They didn't give him any new information about her. They didn't shock him when they shared the grisly details of her story. They didn't cause his jaw to drop because they didn't tell him anything. He didn't already know. He had created this woman in her mother's womb. He had lovingly formed her body to be enjoyed in a loving covenantal relationship with a man for life, not to be passed around for temporary surface level enjoyment. And even that is only a shadow because the ultimate thing she was created for was union with her creator. And even though he knew that she had traded eternal joy for passing pleasure, he still loved her fully exposed in all her sin, yet still fully loved. And you can't tell me that this encounter with the Messiah didn't massively transform this woman. And we can talk about all the factors and the reasons for her adulterous lifestyle. We don't know what they are. Whatever the fulfillment she was seeking, it now paled in comparison, comparison to the love that she found in Jesus, her new savior and king. Jesus refuses to condemn her. And I love this because we like that part of the story. We should. Jesus does refuse to condemn, but he also refuses to condone. And the world says we got to pick one or the other. See, he ends the conversation by encouraging her to, as, as one translation puts it, to leave her life of sin. When he says go and sin no more, he's not saying never sin again, period. That's not the point. He recognizes that she is a broken person and until she is fully redeemed, that will not happen. What he is saying is that this lifestyle of adultery, this ongoing enjoyment in this sin to leave that because you now have something better. And yes, these men were absolutely wrong in their motivation of exposing her, but that doesn't cause Jesus to just let her off the hook. He is both merciful and just. He doesn't condemn us, but he also does not condone sin. You know why? The motivation for his not condoning your sin is because he absolutely loves you. And he knows that at the end of the day, that sin will leave destruction all around you and it will leave you empty and more empty than when you started indulging in it. It can't satisfy you all these things we chase after you were made for him. And I love this though, because he never challenges our sin without first reminding us that I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you always comes before go and sin no more. The reason Jesus could be both merciful and just is because he is the one who is without sin. 
I don't think it's an accident that at the end of this chapter, the religious leaders are no longer trying to stone the woman. They are trying to stone Jesus himself. He has exchanged places with this woman. And this is a snapshot, a small picture of what Jesus does for all of us. See, as we read this story, if we're honest, we're all in the place of the adulterous woman in one way or another. Maybe it's not sexual sin. Most likely stats tell us there is sexual brokenness all around this room. We're honest about that. We recognize that. Some of it's sexual sin done to you and some of it's sexual sin done by you. And we recognize that. But either way, we are in need of a savior. And if we can't find ourselves and see ourselves in the place of this woman, then we might want to ask the spirit for eyes to see, lest we find ourselves in the crowd, self-righteously ready to pick up stones and start throwing them at everyone around us. But for those of us who know who we really are and are willing to admit it, like this woman, we are both a sinner and the victim of sin's oppressive grasp. And we need someone to step in and save us both from ourselves and from those around us. That's who Jesus is. It's what we're all about. With his life, he was the perfect sacrifice. Never once cheated or lied or lusted or stole, was never caught red-handed. He kept the law perfectly, proving that he had the authority to fulfill it. And on the cross, Jesus becomes the accused and the cursed one. Because he could not condone sin, he became condemned. He became sin on our behalf. And he, and he takes care of both the sin in our hearts and the injustice of humanity around us and absorbs it as he hangs there in our place. And on the cross, Jesus shows us that he doesn't condemn or condone. Our sin was serious enough that it cost him his life, but he was serious about his love for us that he willingly gave it up. And as he was buried in the tomb, the great accuser, the one who is behind all accusations, Satan himself, he begins to rejoice on his grave. But the dance party didn't last too long. The celebration was premature. He rushed the field too early. There's some cheesy metaphors for you. I almost didn't say that. I feel like I can't say those, but you know, it's a picture for you. Because three days later, Jesus gets back up from the grave, showing that no one can condemn him for good. Even though he walked into condemnation willingly to redeem us, he did not stay there. And he's dealing with our sin and our shame and our condemnation and our guilt. And this is the good news. It's what we call the gospel. And the life, death, burial, and resurrection is the one thing that can actually transform us from the inside out and make us new. When we trust him, you get by his grace, his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. You get his finished death, his joyous and victorious resurrection, and you no longer stand condemned. Like Paul said in his treatise about condemnation, who can bring anything against God's elect, against those who are his? No one. The great accuser has been dealt with. And so no matter what you've been through, no matter what you face, when you hear his voice, you can remember that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's dealt with it all. And this is the hope. Turn and trust him. When we are faced with our sin, 
Unlike the self-righteous religious leaders who walk away. No, we sit in the dirt and the mess full of our shame. And Jesus crawls down in there with us. And he will not leave till he redeems us. This changes us. We as a people begin to truly care about both justice and mercy. When the world tells you, you got to pick one or the other. We care about it both corporately in the world around us, in our society, in our communities, and also in the hearts of every individual we come into contact with because Jesus first cared about us. We don't have to buy into the false dichotomies of this age that either ignore personal sin or ignore the perversion of justice in the social sphere. And I've, I've heard this passage preached both ways where we present it as if it was all about this woman's personal sin and we completely ignore these men in the story who were absolutely systemically part of oppressing. This wasn't the only woman that had been done wrong in this. And I've heard others where it completely ignored the sin of this woman. And see, the good thing about the gospel of Jesus, you don't have to pick. It's big enough to deal with both and it does. And so my hope, yes, it gets messy. It's not clean. No one's saying that. But my hope for us as New Eden, as we close, as Pastor Dalen would say, I'm done. And then he would preach for another 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm not doing that though. I hope for us that we will follow him into that mess so that we can see both lives and communities flourish. That sin, yes, might be dealt with so that sinners might be saved and that we do this from transformation, not to earn it, not comparing ourselves to others, standing as the self-righteous crowd. So we feel better about ourselves and we're better than that person. So now we're closer to God than they are. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about because we are so secure in who Christ has made us to be that we simply walk in faith. We first hear you are not condemned. Then after we are secure, we hear leave your life of sin. And I hope we keep that in the proper order. May we fight to stay grounded in the work of Jesus. May we as a body and individually grow in radically following Jesus in the way of both 100% grace and 100% truth, neither condemning or condoning. This is the way of the cross. It's where mercy and justice meet. And we stand redeemed and made new because of Jesus. Let's pray.